Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 186 of the Speaking Club podcast. Now, the quote I want to open up this week's show with is often misattributed to Steve Jobs. And it was actually said by a man called Rob Siltanen. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them. Because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking. And because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, I hope you're well. Great to be here with you again in your ears on your radio, in your car, wherever. It's lovely to be here with you. Well, I'm a bit all over the place this week as I'm getting married in two days and things are a bit hectic, to say the least. That's a movie and theatre-themed wedding and so things will be a little different. So I'm going to post some photos on the Instagrams if you want to see what character or characters. Mm, Yes, there might be more than one I'm going as. Well, enough of that. We've got an interview to get to. Now, I don't know about you, but I've often had ideas that I thought would be worthy of Shark Tank or Dragon's Den in the UK. And my most memorable one was an electronic sign you could mount on your back mirror or on your front roof of your car. And it would come up with some sayings if people drove badly around you. I won't, probably can't say what they would be on this show. But I thought that would be brill. And not too long ago, I heard that someone had created something similar. I missed the boat. So, unlike my idea, which was clearly frivolous and potentially a fine starter, there are a lot of people who have ideas that are really good ones that they think will make things better. But few progress beyond the daydream of what if. But my guest in this show had an idea that she just couldn't shake. And after enrolling her sister, they set off on adventure to make it real. And today, Ruth Anslow is a social entrepreneur and a keen advocate of doing business for social benefit beyond just making profit. In 2010, she decided to take on the supermarkets and co-founded Hisby Food with her sister, Amy. Hisby is a supermarket chain with a difference. It's built on a social enterprise business model and designed to support a sustainable future for food and farming. And alongside running Hisby, as if that wasn't enough, Ruth co-founded the Good Business Club to connect entrepreneurs who are starting, running and growing a business for good with the support and resources that they need. And in 2019, 
she started the Hisby Boot Camp to equip the next generation of food rebels to follow in Hisby's footsteps and launch their own change-making shops and brands. And in this show, Ruth is sharing tips for how to get your ideas off the ground, including how she used TEDx and speaking to spread her message. So let's get this interview started. Ruth Angelo, welcome to the Speaking Club. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm really excited. I always say it, but I, I truly am. Always have great guests and, and you're one of them and I love what you're doing. But so I've got a whole range of questions to ask you. But I wanted to kick off with when you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I always wanted to be a businesswoman. At about 12, I kind of saw the path very clearly. Um, I mean, we grew up with no money and part of my drive was to to get out of the situation we were in. Um, and I had a very clear idea that if I got my grades, went to uni, I could become a businesswoman. And I pretty, I, I didn't really know what that meant, but I had a feeling it meant having money, car, great shoes and good hair, you know, and those, <laughs> were, all the, those were all the things that I wanted. So yeah, I just had this drive from very young to get into a better situation, do well at school, and I followed that path. I stayed on the path I put myself on for another for like 20 years. So what were you doing? You know, just did you find a career straight away or did you just fall into jobs? How, how did the career go at that? Um, well, I, um, I could see that if I was going to do, I wanted to do business, a business degree. Um, and so I chose the GCSEs and A-levels that would get me there. And then um, back in the day at that time, um, it was quite an unusual course, but I wanted to do international business and modern languages. And I was really like switched on and excited about the idea of Europe coming together. And, you know, it's it was very new, sexy idea at the time, the idea that we were all combining and we were all kind of going to work together and political and social boundaries and economic boundaries wouldn't be there as much. And, and so I applied to do international business with French, which now those kind of courses are really common but then it was only three or four unis that did it so um i applied to those three or four unis and i went to aston um in birmingham which is a business school and also medical they do optometry and other stuff but they've got a really good business school there and then i went through that course and at the end of it it was all about applying for big corporates um getting onto the getting in with the biggest company that you could so I applied for them all like everyone else, you know, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Kimberly Clark, Cadbury Schweppes. And then the big um, either it was either that we went for or banks or um, a consultancy like Anderson Consulting, as it was at the time. So, yeah, back in the day, that was that was what you did. You know, there was no no one sat me down and went, do you realize you can set up your own business or follow <laughs> your values and um no <laughs> it wasn't an option we just went in there and uh, pursued what the course was designed for so I got on to I uh, got where I wanted to be which was I was at Unilever on their graduate scheme and I started my career there you know a 15-year career in sales and marketing commercial roles all started with my um graduate uh, training scheme at Unilever cool so really in that deep into that corporate world. And so what I wanted to talk about next was the story of how Hisby came to be born. Now, I've seen your TEDx talk, but I wanted you to share it on here because it's it's a great story. And, and I also want to dig a, a bit deeper as well. 
Yeah, so I um I kind of reached I'd, I'd done 15 years basically at, at corporates and working at Unilever and Sara Lee and then finally Procter and Gamble. And I'd put, I'd done all the right stuff, you know, I'd kind of got the promotions, I'd climbed the ladder, I'd discovered I had a real passion for business and commerciality and marketing, you know, kind of creating brands that stood for something. But I realized I had this moment of clarity. I was um I was an expat in Barcelona in a big job there. Um, and I, you know, sat on my um terrace overlooking the tennis courts and the sea. And, you know, I'd sat there with a carver and just had a horrible realization that I wasn't happy. And I just thought, I don't know if I can swear, but no, I thought, you know, heck, um, I'm not happy. Well, why? And I realized that I was, you know, I was doing 60 hour weeks. So I was, I was slaving away and I realized that um, there was something missing and there was a kind of this sense of purpose had gone for me. And kind of the more the more senior I got in these corporate roles, the more uh, the further I got away from the stuff I cared about and the closer I got to just managing the figures, the quarterly figures, the profit margin. And that wasn't what did it for me. So I kind of had this growing dissatisfaction for a while and then it hit me. And once it hits you, you either ignore it or you do something about it, don't you? So, you know, I decided I needed to do something about it. And I kind of I started to think about what I did and I didn't like about my job. And what I did like was I like business. I like the idea of organizing resources and people and money for an outcome, you know, building something, creating jobs for people, making products that are useful for people, mostly. I started thinking about what if I could do that stuff for something I cared about. So then I started thinking about what I cared about and uh, looked around for people who'd done this kind of thing and realized there was a whole other world outside the corporate world of people doing business for good or at least harnessing business skills towards a social purpose and my big hero Anita Roddick you know when I was growing up it was all about the body shop it's where we hung out when we were 13 or 14 hang outside body shop everyone had white musk you know it was just it was just such an amazing awesome company and and I, I kind of looked at their mission um, and then there was Ben and Jerry's and there were thinkers like Daniel Pink and I started looking around and thinking okay this thing about doing business for good is a thing. And that's definitely more me. That's where I need to be. I need to be a social entrepreneur. I didn't know the phrase social entrepreneur for a while longer, actually. But it was this idea that there was something missing and that what was missing was a sense of meaning in what I was doing. And then at the same time, my sister was having similar thoughts. So she'd done a very different career path to me. She's four years younger than me. She'd been in public service, so she'd done, she'd worked for the Met Police, she'd worked for Groundwork, which is um, the UK's biggest environmental agency, she'd worked for the fire service, she'd worked for, you know, helping underprivileged kids gain access to resources and improving council estates, and she kind of got disillusioned with what you can achieve there, and so she moved to Brighton and decided that she would do something else, she started selling coffee on a market stall, um, and she sold the coffee because the story gripped her. So the coffee was produced by a group of Ethiopian guys who'd come over from Ethiopia from um, what was prime coffee growing region. And they were exporting coffee, coffee beans directly from their mates there and grinding and producing them in um, Manchester. Um, and the proceeds of their business, their direct trade coffee business, went back to the people 
um, in their hometowns and was used to send their kids to school. So it was kind of this idea of doing business for good was simmering for both of us and it collided. And this was, you know, this was 10, 11, 12 years ago now. And it was then that kind of the idea of there's how it is, there's how the world is and then how it could be or how it should be. And if you kind of look at how the world is and you can articulate an idea of how it could be and pursue that, then you're going to create change in the world. And that's why we, you know, put ourselves on this path. It's the idea of tackling something, tackling a problem, which in our case is the food industry. We're really worried about where food is headed. And, um, you know, we're, we're looking at an unsustainable and exploitative food system. What do you do about it? Because there's no doubt there needs to be a great shift in the way people shop for food. So we thought, right, what we'll do is we'll reinvent supermarkets. Because if you reinvent supermarkets, you'll change everything because everyone shops at supermarkets. So that was the idea. That's where Hisby was born, this idea of creating a supermarket, how it should be for the 21st century to support sustainable food and farming. Oh, I love that. Yeah. In your TEDx, you talk about this chicken pie. Was there one, it sounds like you were gradually getting disillusioned with yes. things that you were finding out. And was that the tipping point for you? That particular incident wasn't. I'll say what the incident was, but it was one of the a series of little seeds that got planted in my head. Hmm. And so, yeah, the um, chicken pie story was, you know, I used to negotiate with the, one of the big supermarkets. I looked after our business with them. And I was waiting in the foyer for the buyer. They normally keep you waiting between 20 minutes and 40 minutes, part of the game. Um, and he came bouncing down the stairs in a good mood, which is unusual because, again, it's not the game. The game is to poker face. Um, and I said, you know, what's what's happened? And he said, oh, I've just come out the most inspiring meeting. And he was never like this, this guy. And I said, what? What has happened? And he said, well, we're going to save we're going to save the supermarket millions because we've discovered that the chicken in the in the chicken pies is too good. I'm like, what? He said, yeah, the guy creating the chicken pies has always used A grade chicken in the pies. And we've realized it doesn't need to be A grade chicken. It's only economy chicken pies. So they, you know, they make these suppliers downgrade what they do and they're charging the same money to um, customers, um, but paying less to the farmer and pocketing the difference. And I suddenly realized there was just gazillions of examples in my world of doing this to food so that the quality of foods being eroded it happened all throughout the 90s all throughout the noughties kind of gets called category management and it's all about squeezing cost in favor of the supermarket at to the cost of the supplier and the and the customer so that really got my goat you know I just thought that's not right I mean, apart from the fact that I'd grown up on chicken pies, my frozen chicken pies myself, you know, it's just wrong to me. The business world can't be, you know, the business world operates in context of society. It can't, you know, if, if there's no sense of responsibility and there's no kind of benchmarks of decency at all, then it's where does it end? So I think that business does have an element of responsibility to people and, you know, one of them is to, if you're the guardians, if you are one of the top companies that's the guardians of what we eat, which supermarkets are, then you have a responsibility to people. So, yeah, that really, um, that was a big turning. That was a seed, a big seed that was planted in my head that said there's something wrong with the way supermarkets do business. And that seed grew and grew and became part of the part of why we do what we do. And where where was that incident in proximity to 
you and your sister saying, let's do something different? Was that years or was it months? It was a couple of years before. It was a couple of years before I went to Barcelona. So yeah, it was a seed that got planted, that got bigger and bigger. And when Amy was working on coffee, you see, she, she was saying to me, my God, do you know what happens in the coffee industry? You know, you've got these producers and farmers that live on the poverty line, and then you've got us overpaying for this product and all the money goes to the big companies and the big brands. And we started talking about her coffee with these guys importing it from Ethiopia and packaging up and most of the money goes to the supplier. And I just said, that's just coffee how it should be, which is kind of where his became, you know, part of where his became from. And um, then we started talking about what if everything was how it should be? You know, what if everything you bought, most of the money went to the suppliers? So now when you spend a pound at Hisby, 68p goes to the suppliers. And that's the way around it should be because they produce our food. So if you pay suppliers properly, you get decent food and nutrition and farming standards, whereas the average supermarket pays suppliers nine or 10p in the pound. And their job is to squeeze them and charge customers as much as possible. So, um, yeah, we were like, okay, what if everything was how it should be? And that's where the idea of putting all the stuff that was how it should be together under one roof so that you could make it easier for shoppers to make these kind of choices. That's brilliant. And, and did you like, did, when did you come up with his beer as a name? Because I absolutely love it. It's fantastic. It sounds good, but it also has that extra meaning. Were you like, was it an obvious choice or were you just like mulling it over and thought, well, why don't we just call it this? It was, it was in 2009 um, when I was on the phone to Amy and she was telling me about her coffee. And I said, that's just coffee how it should be. And that was it. It came out. And then we started getting excited about this concept of how food should be, how it should be fair, local, sustainable, um, responsibly sourced, minimising plastic, minimising waste. And we got very excited and started um, sketching out our principles of how the supply chain should be and how a supermarket, if a supermarket was how it should be, what would it do that's different to what regular supermarkets do? How would you turn the model on its head? And yeah, it all kind of spun off from the idea of, well, this is how it is and this is how it should be. Because we need we need massive systemic shift in our lifetime. Certainly, certainly by 2030, you know, we need all the good work to join up to address the issues in our food system. Well, there's going to be big problems ahead. And so when you guys had the idea, were you just like completely full throttle or was there any type of anxiety fear about doing this project when you started off both we were full throttle and we were crapping ourselves (laughs) (laughs) so uh yeah i mean we were both committed to following some sort of purpose because we're both like that we're both driven by we're here for a very short time in this world and what are you going to put your life towards what are you going to spend your time on um, is important and that we also have the belief that you can make a difference and you can make a change if you commit and that all sorts of things are possible that people don't think are possible and so yeah we we committed we committed in 2009 that this is what we were going to do and we made it happen in 2010 we moved to Brighton relocated started writing our business plan constituted the company but yeah that wasn't to say that we were you know engulfed in fear and self-doubt as well because it's both Mm. you know we had the excitement we had a bit of money in our pockets because I'd had 
um it you know it's funny how things happen but the company i was working with got bought out by another company that made us all redundant so i had some money in my back pocket and um the timing was right and we seized on it and just said look this is what we're going to do and we spent three years in a flat in brighton figuring out how to do it and every time we run out of money i would go out and earn more money to bring to keep us going um but yeah it was yeah it was a time of wonderful highs and excitement where we figured another bit of it out and then disappointments and knockbacks a lot of people when you're doing something different want to tell you that you're mad or crazy or it's been done or it can't be done people a lot of people just do that as that it's their own fears talking you know you get confronted with what goes on for you so you know imagine I'd been on this very kind of predictable route road for 15 years and gone when I was 13 I was like right I'm going to be a businesswoman and I went to uni, you know, did my A-levels, went to uni, climbed the ladder, got into the biggest companies. That was a very, that's a very predictable, stable um, sort of trajectory. And I was smashing all of that. I was going, forget all that. I'm moving country, moving home, moving away from friends, going to live with my sister, creating a supermarket. We have no idea how to create a supermarket. We just know it has to be done. And it's frightening. It All that, all that change and uncertainty eats away you know all the little gremlins come up that tell you you can't do it so yeah it was bonkers it was brilliant but it was bonkers and it still is brilliant but bonkers yeah. <laughs> so. and, and I love the fact you know you've got eight values um I think it is and I I love them you know they are very you know it's, it's quite interesting because I think there are other places that maybe have one thing you know you get zero waste shops that's one thing but you've got eight things and yeah. you know how difficult is it living those values and making this business sustainable it's the biggest challenge we've got so i mean we set out these values very early on because together the eight things represent a more a sustainable food and farming system and they are briefly start with good food not stuff stuffed with chemicals actual food go local seasonal healthy animals, um, be kind to the planet using natural, not over chemicalized processes, um, minimal waste, value people and ethical business models. So they're the eight things just briefly. Mm. And they're the eight things required for us to move into a sustainable future for food and farming. But they conflict in places. So, you know, our biggest challenge has always been right. Okay. What we did is we took each product category in the shop, say veggies, and we looked at veggies and we went, okay, right. What's how it should be in vegetables? Okay, in, in service of sustainable food and farming, fruit and vegetables should be as local as possible. And you should have, if not organic standards, you should at least be sure that your suppliers are not using bonkers amount of um, chemical fertilizers and antibiotics and all sorts of rubbish that gets put into the ground to do high yields and industrialized farming. And, you know, you want them to be as fresh as possible and be produced as close to the shop as possible. You want to keep that money in the local economy. Okay, so in vegetables, local and seasonal is really important. And same as fruit, local and seasonal is really important. But people will leave your shop if they can't buy bananas. People will leave your shop if, you cut, if they can't buy avocados. So people aren't ready yet. Maybe they will be one day to eat only local and seasonal. So then we're like, okay, we have to look at this product category. And um, we have, you know, products like oranges and bananas and avocados and 
products that aren't made in, in this country, but which we decided the standard then is organic and fair trade. Right. So we've got, you know, it has been all these subtle kind of resistance and kind of overlap between the eight values to balance them all off against each other. So the idea is we, it might not be perfect, but we do the best that we can. For example, in tinned fish, you know, people are used to eating tuna, but the seas are overfished and, you know, it's created, it creating an enormous problem and burden on marine life and ecosystems. And um, we kind of set out our needs from a tinned fish brand and there was only one that met them, you know, Fish Forever, which is a great, great fish brand. But you're you're then charging £1.89 for a tin of tuna, whereas people are used to picking it up in Asda for 80 odd P. But that's what met the standard. So in that situation, you can't really compromise it. You have to, you have to say tuna should be 189. Oh, it should be. Yeah, it's how it should be. So yeah, we had all these confronting things and and um that's been the hardest thing is balancing these eight values off each other, making different choices and making sure that we're always progressing forward and getting better at each one of the eight things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I was interested in is why you chose to set Hisby up as a social enterprise rather than a for-profit. Do you yeah. think running... A supermarket in this way and being profitable are mutually exclusive or was there another you know what was the reason for it well we set out to prove and history is an experiment to prove that you can run a supermarket how it should be and still make money right cool so that was it it was like we started out as a social enterprise because we thought that was the best way to put values truly central to what we were doing and to prove that this is what we were doing and we also wanted to be careful how we brought money into the business we wanted to fund the business by people who were into investing in social impact so we were like okay if we become a social enterprise and when when we looked into it at the time the cic the community interest company structure was the strictest one we were like okay we'll be a cic we'll um be very clearly constituted as a social enterprise we'll run as a social enterprise and we'll raise money and get our funding through social investors. Because whoever lends you money, you're in, you know, you're literally in debt to and figuratively in debt to, you know, they have some say. So, you know, we work with um, you know, our funders are people like Big Issue Invest, the Charities A Foundation, clearly so Kiva. And, you know, they are companies that support us and invest financially in us. Um, for social return as well as making some money but they will also charge you less for loans um, and financing because they believe in what you're doing so yeah it was important to us how we were constituted and where we got money from and those those kind of needs pointed towards being a social enterprise so so it is for profit and that is the that is the test and you're achieving that aren't you yeah, I mean, God, since COVID, yeah. things have gone slightly tits up, but yes. we'll come to that. But yeah, that's that's the thing is that we are we are purpose led, but we also are commercially driven. We have to be because we're competing with Aldi up the road, co-op and Sainsbury's around the corner. You know, we have to have an offer that is appealing to supermarket shoppers to survive. And there is no social impact without making that profit or at least making enough profit to cover your bills so 
yeah, they're both equally important, making enough money to keep going and our social impact are equally important. There's been um, many situations where we've had to make a choice between one or the other at, at a certain point in time, um, but we have a commitment to both. Cool. Have you ever had any situations where it's been really tricky? I mean, I'm assuming profit loses out when it comes to the crunch or is that not true? More often than not, yeah. So uh, the, the classic example is that when we're going through tricky cash flow times, we don't fire people. Mm. I mean, it's, and we pay the real living wage and we give people decent working hours and, you know, we give people proper contracts. So all that sounds like basic stuff, but the supermarkets don't do that. And most retail doesn't do that. The minute they hit a rocky patch, they get rid of everyone. So, you know, there's that's the kind of classic ongoing example since since we started that we have a commitment to people that other shops don't and when things get sticky and money gets tough yeah you have to make these choices you get confronted with what's important to you absolutely and you mentioned covid has that been you know it's obviously affected everyone how's it impacted you guys yeah so it's basically really impacted our customer numbers so well the first thing that happened is that we we signed a lease for our second shop on the 28th of february uh, we got the money through to launch the second shop a week later. And then a week after that, COVID hit. Oh, no. So we didn't, we had to put all of our plans to launch that second store on hold and go back to Brighton and make sure that that store was okay and the staff were okay and the customers were okay. I mean, back then in March last year, we didn't know what the hell was going to happen. We, we didn't know whether this thing was so contagious that everyone was going to get it into 10 minutes and our shop would be closed. We didn't know if we'd have a business in two months. Like it was just bonkers so yeah we there was a lot of people that were um shopping with us that that during lockdown and the social distancing protocols they couldn't they were at home looking after the kids homeschooling working from home and relying on you know supermarket home deliveries Mm. so you know we're slowly recovering that back now so yeah the brighton store suffered from a loss of trade and the worthing store suffered because we couldn't open it for another eight months so <laughs> we didn't even know if we'd be able to you know so we launched Worthing in January 2020 instead of May 2019 and um, lost money in the meantime because we were still paying rent and bills and stuff like that so yeah that was tough but we got through it and we scaled the um, Brighton store right back cut all the costs that we could we managed to keep everyone all the staff employed um, and we used made full use of the furlough scheme, but yeah, we had to adapt our model to survive, basically. Gosh, and I guess that's the thing, you know, being at the moment smaller, not having the sort of you know the resources of some of those bigger entities, it, it meant it hit you harder. Yeah, um, it feels to me, and I'm sure, I don't you you'll probably agree that beyond creating the store, you're trying to create this movement. How are you getting the message out there to bring people onto the same page? Yeah, it is about a movement. It's about it's about igniting a spark of awareness with people and giving them a course of action, i.e. shopping with us or shopping differently somewhere else. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we one of the biggest things we did was social media. So we created a blog and started talking about his be on social media years before the shop opened. We created a following and a sort of rallying cry for a different kind of supermarket. And we did what we still do, you know, out there on social media, connecting with like-minded people. 
And so, you know, we connected with the Soil Association, the Fair Trade Foundation, Ethical Consumer, um, and local organisations like Queer. We're active with Brighton the Brighton Hove Food Partnerships, working with them on the, the Sustainable Gold City bid that we've just they've just secured last year. Um, it's a, you know aligning with like-minded people, supporting their campaigns. Um, and getting to know others in the space has always been important because the movement is all about joining the dots. It's the same as the other stuff in the environmental movement and sustainability movement. The answers are all out there. You know, we, we know what to do um, and lots of people are doing it, but those efforts need to be all joined up to create impact and momentum and to um, awareness among the public and the everyday supermarket shopper to take action and to do something differently and demand something differently. So yeah, the movement really is all about driving awareness and joining the dots. Cool, and you're obviously doing a, a, a great job there. And how important has speaking, this is a speaking club, how important has speaking been as a strategy for sharing this mission? I mean, very important. I I still, although it's been quieter over the last year for obvious reasons, I still, I love to get out there and share the vision and the mission and do this kind of thing because one, it's, it's very invigorating to me and two, something always comes of it. Someone, someone always gets in contact with me through it or they, yeah, they've heard or they've seen it or in a year's time, I knock on their door and they, they already know who we are. So Speaking has been an important way to not just give voice to the movement, but to raise Hisby's profile. So that I would say that in terms of profile, we really punch above our weight. You know, we're two shops and we are really well known in the social enterprise movement and the local food movement in this country. And for our sustainability, we're quoted in all sorts of industry reports. We're ranked the second most ethical supermarket in Britain by the ethical consumer. You know, we are talked about by Barclays Bank. We appear in their reports on sustainability. You know, we're talked about by Marks and Spencers. You know, we're out there. And a big part of that has been me getting out there and talking. Um, and Amy as well at the, at the start, my sister, for giving a voice to these issues. The TED talk that I did, well, that was years ago now, that was 2014, feels like a lifetime ago, but <laughs> that was important because it's all about showing that it's possible, you know, it's raising the bar on what's possible because 10 years ago, people thought we were mad and had no worries about saying that to your face, you know, you're mad um, to think that there could be something else other than Tesco or a vegan shop, you know. And now you can see the trends that we were talking about then all around us, you know. There's a big groundswell for the plastic waste movement, the zero waste shops. There's a lot of um, momentum behind local food and regenerative farming, which is the new word that, you know, encapsulates it all. There's more transparency around ethical supply chains. There's greater demand from, from people for responsibility within business. All of the trends that we could see were there then, but other people couldn't see, are all really visible now. And it's kind of hard to say that don't exist or that someone is mad for following them. So that's wonderful. That's wonderful to see. And yeah, I believe that we have an obligation to get out there and share our story for that reason, because it creates the groundswell and it joins the dots in people's heads. And um, it's an example of what can be done. You know, it raises the bar on what is possible. Do you think 
it just occurred to me do you think that because it was you and your sister you had were more resilient and more persistent and you know this, this idea of grit than you would have been if you were doing it on your own were you able to keep each other afloat and you know yeah I wouldn't have done it without Amy and Amy wouldn't have done it without me because it's too hard and um you know we those three years that we were working on this together were really hard years but also we're quite we're not very good at asking for help because we're kind of resourceful people who get stuff done but at the time we had a couple of knockbacks that um made us kind of more insular and just go oh god they're not ready for it we'll just work on it here but yeah we should have got more help and that's why um I've set up this business called the good business club um I co-founded a business called the good business club which is all about helping people who are starting up or in the early stages of running social impact businesses or businesses for good to get the help and the network that they need and like-minded people because I remember how isolating it felt being stuck in that situation but you know as you say if it hadn't been for us having each other we wouldn't have stuck at it not for that long wow that's really that's really cool glad you did so yeah. now I want to quickly get back to your TEDx talk um what was your approach in putting that talk together because the the aim of it must must have been I'm assuming to get people to try and get people on the same page yeah the aim was to spread the word of the revolution you know to say look we've just it was you know the store was less than a year old and I was so nervous I was I was approached to do the TED talk and I was immediately completely intimidated and it's an intimidate it's an intimidating experience or it was for me but I I needed to stand up there and go look we're just two sisters who have followed a vision for how it should be. And this is how we did it. And this is why we did it. And if we can do it, you can do it too. And that was really what the talk's about. The talk's about, we were upset with this thing. We created a vision of how it should be. And despite the knockbacks that we had um, and the odds being so against us, we did get a supermarket off the ground and it was successful. I mean, right from the beginning, that Brighton store had was hitting its sales targets. You know, we had loads of people. We had more customers than we expected. Um, and, you know, we'd spent three years kind of building that. So, yeah, I was kind of just saying, look, this is what we did and this is how we did it. And trying to share and pass on what we'd learned so far. So yeah, that was my approach. Cool. And I and I mean you tell that you open it up with story pretty much of the chicken chicken pie, I think. Yeah, chicken pies, chicken yeah. Pie, yeah. Um <laughs> did did was that intentional? Yeah, I wanted to grab people's attention in the first minute, like they say, you know, that's what you do with a talk. Grab people's attention. It helps if it's a bit of a personal story. And it was, you know, here we are growing up um in difficult circumstances living off food from bee jams as it was back in the day and to my shock you know decades later I find out that they took the goodness out of the pies in bloody 1990 so you know it's like yeah it was I thought a good way to start what I was trying to say you know supermarkets have been created that way they're not that way because of some force of nature a business doesn't operate the way it operates because all some force of nature made it that way it's people that made it that way mm. and if they can make it that way they can make it another way you know we've got the supermarket model we've got for you know it's been that way for 40 50 years it doesn't mean to say that it has to be that way forever 
And look, it is possible. It is possible. And it's not just us that have shown it's possible. There's other people around the country doing similar to us um, who are also little pockets of supermarket rebels showing that there is another way. And I do love that about your message because it is very clear that you say, you know, we want to, you know, we're not in competition. We want to encourage, copy us, you know, do, do what we do um, just so that this thing can, can, you know, really get moving. Yeah, it is absolutely imperative that these principles get get picked up. I mean, you know, by the year 2030, if we haven't halved the CO2 emissions, if we haven't made a massive inroads into this area, we're down, we're on a certain path that we can't turn around from. And, you know, by 2050, we'll be breathing pollution. Really, it's a desperate situation. And so it has to be taken up. It has to be copied. You know, we can't do it on our own. We have to have the big supermarkets take some of this stuff seriously and do it and undone, undo some of the damage that they've done. And it all has to happen pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's going to happen by companies and um, shoppers doing something differently and suppliers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I think there is this, you know, that it, it really, I mean, thinking back to sort of those films like Wall Street and, and all sorts, and it, it's almost like there's this moral vacuum where profit's concerned, and it, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I think things are beginning to shift. But yeah, the other thing that really I think is important to, to share, share about Hisby is that one of the things that you have clearly in the shop is that you want it to be affordable. You know, this isn't for middle class, you know, you don't want it just to be for middle class people. You know, you want it to be affordable as well. That's the ultimate aim. And at the moment, it's hard. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, there are, you know, there there are a lot of people who couldn't afford my shop. So, yes, we make things as cheap as we possibly can afford to, to our own detriment at times. But it's, you know, to, to produce food well and properly, some stuff is not affordable to some people like the tuna at 189 you know um but our aim is to for the people who can make a different choice so there are millions of people on average incomes who could afford to 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 make better more sustainable choices but don't because we've all been trained to go cheap so you know right from you know all advertising gears up to it you know everything's about not spending money and making it as cheap as possible and I always say go you know go cheap on flights and you know if you're going to fly or you know go cheap on your mobile phone bill but food we should all be buying the best we can afford and and unfortunately we've been trained to buy and eat really bad quality cheap food so I'm hoping to appeal to all those people who can afford organic eggs over free range edge range eggs all those people who can afford the tin tuna at 189 to make those choices because then when that happens it will get cheaper Hmm. so you know and then one day people on lower incomes will be able to afford it um and that's you know that's part of systemic change it needs to be it needs to be driven by the people who can make the choices cool okay brilliant and before i go on to my sort of standard questions what tips would you give to people like you who see that something is flawed and could be better, you know, in terms of getting started? Um, I think the best advice is always, you know, you've got to start before you're ready. And I say that to a lot of people because I realised it early on, you're never ready. 
So I think everything in life, you start before you're ready, whether it's having a baby, planning, you know, it's, it's like you're never ready. So, you know, you no, you're not equipped. You haven't got everything you need. You can't answer it all yourself, but start before you're ready. Just start. Articulate how it is in the world and your vision of how it should be um, and get that vision out there. You know, get out there and share it far and wide because the people who care will come. So, you know, Hisby was built in those three years by us sharing the vision far and wide and lots of people helping us build bits of it. There's no way Amy and I didn't do it all ourselves by a long chalk, you know, we had a lot of people helping us design the shop, raise the money, um, build the brand, get the voice out there, um, uh, find suppliers, all sorts of things we had help with. So you have to get your vision out there. And people are a bit afraid to do this sometimes. People, you know, people would say to me, oh, you shouldn't be telling everyone what you're doing. What if someone does it before you? And I was like, brilliant. If they do it before me, hats off to them. Well done. Because that it needs to happen. So, you know, and I'm pretty sure they won't do it before me because it's bloody hard. <laughs> so they can do it before me. They deserve to be out there before us. That's brilliant. So yeah, you've got to share that vision, be generous with that vision and um, enroll people in the vision and, and find your tribe, as they say, you know, find your like-minded people. Because for every door that you knock on and they tell you, to go away or that you're mad there's people who do get it and do want to be part of it um and so yeah and then finally i would just say ask for help you know ask her we didn't do enough of that we could have got we probably could have got going faster but it's about knowing where your gaps are and asking for help to bridge those gaps Cool. I love that. Thank you so much. That's brilliant. Right. Um, I do want to come back to where people can find out more about what's going on with Hisby towards the end, but I've got some standard questions first. Now, this this is the speaking club. So, I mean, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. What's the best thing that speaking's done for you? Um, confidence, I think. So, the validation that comes with sharing your vision, getting over the fear, getting over the fear and saying this stuff, I'm going to build a supermarket revolution. I'm going to transform the food industry by opening and reinventing, opening supermarkets and reinventing the way they work. That was scary 10 years ago. I didn't say it because it sounded so radical, but it, it's what I meant and it's what I did. So, you know, there, but, and in saying it, people who agreed with me would come up to me and go, yeah, you're right. We do need to reinvent supermarkets. How can I help? Or good on you, you go for it. So it was the confidence to carry on and proceed. And that's the biggest thing I've got, got, got from it really is personally just that, that energy, that you know, feeding the energy to carry on. You've got to share what's in your heart and you've got to share what's in your vision or it just sort of fizzles away and you talk yourself out of it. I love that. Cool, that's brilliant. Um... And have you had a speaking gig that didn't go to plan that you were like, oh my God, I wish I could forget that. Has that happened to you? Uh, yeah, I, I can't really name it because it's a bit unfair, but yeah, I was invited to speak at a thing and um, I was speaking to a lot of suppliers who wanted to get their products into, the, into supermarkets. 
and I and you know it's a big conference and it was a really it was a really good conference in lots of ways but I was invited to speak and I wanted to use the platform to say to suppliers we need to consider sustainability you know I talked about our eight values and that the you know that the urgent need to address problems of consumption and responsibility and when I got there I realized that no one wanted to talk to someone who ran one supermarket at the time you know they were all in listening to Waitrose and Tesco and I had such a small audience and I, I was so passionate about it it just wasn't the right crowd because <laughs> they they weren't in that frame of mind they were in the frame of mind of look I just want to get my product out there so yeah I, I completely mismanaged their audience and they didn't turn up because they could see that I was a bit of an idealist in a forum that wasn't about idealism. I think that's what happened anyway. How long but ago that, was that? Uh, three or four years ago. I bet it I would be different today. I bet you it would be. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, since then, there's there's been such a tide of interest in sustainable brands, ethical consumerism, um, and it's growing all the time. So, yeah, uh, probably it would be. It didn't put me off, but it was just funny the way I just I just soldiered on and did it anyway and said all the stuff I wanted to say but I could see you know when you could see it was like okay this isn't landing but never mind <laughs> well you sowed the seed and you never know what happened as a result yeah, you never you know the seed, sowed, seed sowed but <laughs> um yeah it was it was quite, it was quite funny oh, thank you for sharing that I appreciate that okay next question what is the one book that you've read that's had most impact on your life and why Oh, um, well, Anita Roddick and Joanna Blythman are both their books. So Joanna Blythman shopped and Anita Roddick, her books on principles before profit um, completely rocked my world because Anita was so ahead of her time, so ahead of her time and so innovative. You know, these books were written you know, decades ago and they were the ones that I picked up when I was realising I needed to do something else with my life and that it was about business, but it was about meaning. And then Joanna Blythman, the work she's done, she's a journalist and a writer, the book she's written and the work she's done on supermarkets and what's happened in our food industry is, is awesome. It's proper investigative journalism. And um, there's nothing she doesn't know about the topic. And I was very happy to have met Joanna a few times and also to have met Anita Roddick's husband, Gordon, a few times and tell them what the books meant to me but yeah those were the ones that really pointed me in the right direction and made me realize I was going on the right path excellent well I'll put, I'll put a link in the show notes to to that and to Anita's book as well okay um this might be linked to that what's the best piece of business advice you've ever had and why oh the best piece of business advice just keep going even if you're only doing it because a lot of people when they start a business are already doing something else and they're trying, they've got their job or their career or their family or the thing that they're doing. And this other embryonic thing, the new business, trying to grow that at the same time. And inevitably you get pulled back to the other thing and you're having to juggle both. And it's really, really hard. And it can be very disheartening if you feel like you're not making any progress. Mm. But, you know, I, I just I've seen a lot of people do this now and that it percolates and works over months and years of just keeping going. So you just keep going. You just do, even if you're just doing a tiny bit each day or thinking about it each day, it, it builds and it grows and it becomes what it needs to be. And then in the tough times of running a business, as as always come, just keep going is, is basically everything to me. Um, 
and that's the best bit of advice I can give. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you. That's cool. Okay, last question. Again, I might know the answer to this, but we'll, we'll ask and see what see what comes up. If you could have one mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? That would be Anita. I thought so. <laughs> but I'm very fortunate to have met her husband, Gordon, and her, her daughter, Sam, and they are all, they're exceptional people. And so I feel like I've seen glimpses of her through her books and through them. Um, but yeah, she remains ahead of her time. She started talking about the concept of love and values in business, you know, 30 years ago, you know, standing up in front of great big auditoriums of um, grey suited men talking about this stuff that, you know, business needs to evolve. We need to inject fairness and love and compassion and, you know, people would laugh at her. Um, but, you know, she was absolutely right and way ahead of her time like I say so yes I'd love to hang out with her brilliant I'm I'm sure you're going to be as inspiring as she was to many people going forward you've really given me lots of food for thought today something that I've been sort of putting in pushing to the back of uh, back of my mind so that's brilliant okay now if people want to find out about more about Hisby um, more about the other stuff so I know you do some consultancy as well for for stores and stuff like that where's the best place for them to go okay so the best place is the website you can read all about our values and what propels Hisby and we put a lot of stuff out on social media as well so the website and our um, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And one of the things I do is I help people who are starting out creating their own retail um, offerings or food and drink brands within this space. And, you know, I call it Hisby Bootcamp. It's basically me <laughs> and uh, helping you get off the ground. And I kind of do consultancy in that sphere. And then um, we also I also do talks, you know, for corporates, for um, companies that want to inject a little bit of Hisby into what they're doing, get some food for thought. And I recently did a talk at Dow Egberts, for example, um, the big coffee company. Coffee, yeah. And you know, they were interested in just having a different view and a, a different look at you know, an emerging new brand and you know, sustainability. I love that because I, I, I charge money for my time and it goes back to Hisby. So that's all on the website. Fantastic. And I'll put links in the show notes to that as well. Now, is there anything else that you feel you need to say um, in order to call this interview complete? Oh, I would just say I would challenge everybody who's listening to this to have a think about sustainability and the urgency of it um, and the direct line between what we do in the next 10 years and what it, the world will look like in 2050. And, you know, it's not about being perfect it's it's about the choices we make when we put stuff in our basket or on our dinner plates it's everybody can make better choices and i would say that there is a there's such um a rising swell of hope around this that we've all got a part to play in it um and please you know to have a think about sustainability and the issues that we're facing and take action Oh, I love that. Well, Ruth, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and all that you're doing to, to move this forward and good luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a breath of fresh air to chat to you. I hope you like that. Ruth was so inspiring, wasn't she? And so down to earth with it. So question for you, do you have a big idea? Well, 
go and check out Ruth's boot camp over at Hisby and all the other wonderful stuff on that site. Also, go and connect with Ruth on LinkedIn. I'm sure she'd love your feedback uh, and what you thought of the show. And all of the links for uh, Ruth's stuff and the books and all sorts are in the show notes. And do let her know, as I said, if what she said resonated with you. And if you want to get your idea out there, then do pop on to saraharcher.co.uk and book in a discovery call. There are lots of different ways I can help you to become a great speaker and get your message out into the world and start having the impact you want with it. And we can see if you're a good fit for my programs. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'll be back next week to keep you moving forward on your speaking and marketing journey. And if you're a regular listener and you've got value from the show, you are no doubt wanting to share that feedback with others. And it would be amazing if you left a rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. It really helps the show out. I love getting the feedback and it will take you just a couple of minutes. In the meantime, you know the drill. Don't forget to grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. Getting to practice your speaking in front of an audience is a crucial part of testing your message and developing your skills and experience as a speaker. Yet opportunities to do this in the right environment can be hard to find. Add in the chance to get expert feedback and coaching on your content structure and delivery and the opportunities are even fewer. But that's what you'll get as a member of the Speaking Club Live. Each week we'll be focusing on a different aspect of business speaking, from pitching to presenting to videos and lives. There'll be hot speak slots and you'll get the chance to practice sharing your message, your storytelling, your humour and all the different aspects of speaking in front of me and other members. Then you'll get feedback and coaching from me and your peers so that you're moving forward on your speaking journey with accountability and support. If you'd like to find out more about how you can become a member of the Speaking Club Live so that you can build your confidence, improve your delivery and become a better speaker, then go to saraharcher.co.uk slash club now.